Today's reading is from Nehemiah 13, verses 7 to 22. I arrived in Jerusalem and learned of the wrong that Eliashib had done in turning over to him a room in the courts of the temple of God. I was angry, really angry, and threw everything in the room out into the street, all of Tobiah's stuff. Then I ordered that they ceremonially cleanse the room. Only then did I put back the worship vessels of the temple of God, along with the grain offerings and the incense. And then I learned that the Levites hadn't been given their regular food allotments. So the Levites and singers who led the services of worship had all left and gone back to their farms. I called the officials on the carpet. Why has the temple of God been abandoned? I got everyone back again and put them back on their jobs so that all Judah was again bringing in the tithe of grain, wine, and oil to the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. I made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mattaniah, their right-hand man. These men had a reputation for honesty and hard work. They were responsible for bring, distributing the rations to their brothers. Remember me, O Lord, for this. Don't ever forget the devoted work I have done for the temple of God and its worship. During those days, while back in Judah, I also noticed that people treaded wine presses, brought in sacks of grains, and loaded up their donkeys on the Sabbath. They brought wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of stuff to sell on the Sabbath. So I spoke up and warned them about selling food on that day. Tyrians living there brought in fish and whatever else, selling it to the Judeans. In Jerusalem, mind you, on the Sabbath, I confronted the leaders of Judah. What's going on here, this evil profaning the Sabbath? Isn't this exactly what your ancestors did? And because of it, didn't God bring down on us and all this city, all this misery? And here you are adding to it, accumulating more wrath on Jerusalem by profaning the Sabbath. As the gates of Jerusalem were darkened by the shadows of the approaching Sabbath, I ordered the doors shut and not to be opened until the Sabbath was over. I placed some of my servants at the gates to make sure that nothing to be sold would get in on the Sabbath day. Traders and dealers in various goods camped outside the gates once or twice, but I took, to them to ta- but I took them to task. I said, you have no business camping out here by the wall. If I find you here today, I'll use my force to drive you off. And that did it. They didn't come back on the Sabbath. Then I directed the Levites to ceremonially cleanse themselves and take over as guards at the gates to keep the sanctity of the Sabbath day. Remember me also for this, my God. Treat me with mercy according to your great and steadfast love. Amen. Thank you. Uh, for that, as you can see today, yeah, we're um, concluding our series in the book of Nehemiah, looking at how we can live unshakable lives in shakable times. And we've been seeing that Nehemiah did something amazing and extraordinary during his lifetime. Um, and we looked at that a bit in, uh, over the last few weeks. But this morning, we're going to actually conclude this series. And to do that, I've asked uh, sort of a guest speaker, not really a guest speaker, but you're going to hear in a moment from my wife, actually, from Carrie Stevens. And so, uh, Carrie here, yeah, we just... She and I celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary this past week, and uh, her 21st birthday was also uh, last week as well, and so happy birthday to you, and happy anniversary to us. Uh, she likes to write a little and speak a little, and as I say, love a lot. So uh, if you're new here, we have four children and are, again, happily, happily, did I mention we're happily married? Because we're happily married. 
No, she's great, and I'm going to finish this series for us this morning. So we guys please welcome her today? Thank you. <clears throat> I actually like to tell people that I just turned 61 because I look really good for 61. So <laughs> I never tell people I'm younger than I am because they'd be like, 21? Oh, God, what'd you do? Anyways, 61. I married a young, young baby. <laughs> Okay, so we have, we've been in Nehemiah, and it's been really amazing watching him uh, rebuild the wall and in such a short amount of time bring Israel back to their faith in God and their worship. But here in chapter 13, I don't know if you picked up on it as we did the very long reading, but uh, it gets a little dicey for Nehemiah, and it seems like perhaps, just perhaps, he's gotten a little stressed under the pressure of trying to save everything himself and lead all these people, and he sort of seems to snap, maybe go over the edge a tad bit. But today we're going to just lean right into Nehemiah and what he does in chapter 13, and we're going to take a good look at one man's attempt to redeem his city and how it can point us toward a better solution, perhaps by looking at how Nehemiah gets it right, how Nehemiah gets it wrong, and how we can get it right. So it starts with Nehemiah saying, I was angry, really angry, and threw everything in the room out onto the street. Nehemiah goes into action here. And it's a little shocking, to be honest. The drama of this passage kind of reminds me of those daytime court shows. You know, I don't know if you were thinking that during the reading, but... um, making that connection, but it sort of reminds me of those, and not, I don't watch those kinds of shows myself, but sometimes when I'm at the gym, Judge Judy is on, mm-hmm. and for those of you who aren't familiar with Judge Judy, I will sort of give you an education in all things JJ, um, so I'm there at the gym on the elliptical, because that is all I do at the gym. That's what the gym's for. And I'm on the elliptical, and I try to avert my eyes, you guys. I really try hard, but I just get sucked into the human drama. There's this display of amazingness on the screen as, you know, things like accusations of taking all my stuff and throwing it out the window into the courtyard because my roommate got mad at me or whatever. Or, uh not paying some kind of loan that was co-signed, but not really co-signed because it wasn't legal because it was through an illegal source. But now I want my money back, but it wasn't actually my money. I actually borrowed it from somebody else. And this is Judge Judy. (laughs) My favorite thing that happens on Judge Judy is that they'll say they're related and that they're family. And then Judge Judy will ask how they're related. And they'll be like, well, I mean, like we grew up like brothers. And did you grow up in the same house? No. Judge Judy hates it when people call people family who aren't actually legally family. It's like really gets under her skin. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry. We just have to talk about Judge Judy. Because Nehemiah is like this here. We see just this massive upending of people and goods and jobs. And we watch as Nehemiah is straight out of Judge Judy. He leaves town, he comes back, and he realizes everyone has forgotten how to live and be nice. He comes back, and the, the chief priest, or the high priest, has rid the storerooms that are supposed to hold holy offerings, 
and hooked a brother up. Now, the brother he hooked up, Tobiah, is actually the person who, back in chapter 4, if you remember, uh, were you paying attention? Okay, back in chapter 4, Tobiah publicly said, don't rebuild the wall, we're against Nehemiah, we don't want Jerusalem to be secured. And now here he is living in the temple because he's related by marriage to the high priest and the high priest wanted to hook his brother up. So it's a bit of a mess. And then Nehemiah finds out that all the Levites haven't been paid. No one's paying the priests, probably because there had nowhere to store the payment for the priests. And so all of the, high pri- all of the priests and singers have gone back to their farms way out in the country. They're not even there taking care of the temple. And then he realizes that no one is obeying the fourth commandment. They're all profaning the Sabbath. They're buying, they're selling, there's massive trade going on. No one is worshiping God. And Nehemiah is shocked and very, very upset. And later in the passage, this gets even worse. And this is the part that's really hard for our modern Western eyes and ears. So later in the passage, Nehemiah finds out that these Jewish men have all married foreign women and that all their children are being raised as foreigners. They're not learning the the customs, the faith, the language of their people. And Nehemiah cannot handle it. It just all comes crashing in. He's wondering what is going to happen to his people. What is going to happen to his family? And he starts kicking these women out of the community and telling these men they can't stay with their wives. It's really, really shocking. I mean, it's very Judge Judy. But what we really have here is a broken faith community. There's a brokenness that's come to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah gets that part right. Nehemiah looks around and he realizes that there's something broken in his faith community, and he decides to do something about it, which you have to honor, right? I mean, that's pretty awesome that Nehemiah even tries to fix things. But what is he seeing here specifically? Nehemiah is seeing that the people have forgotten what it means to be holy. They've forgotten that they're meant to be a holy people. And underneath it all, brokenness in a faith community comes from forgetting why we're here in the first place. And that God has made us to be a holy people. That is what this faith community is for. We're supposed to know who we are, who God is, and why we're meant to be holy, that we're meant to be holy. So when that happens, we're in danger. When we forget, we're in danger, really, of uh, loving ourselves more than we love God. So what does it mean to be holy? Let's define this very familiar Bible term. Everybody's heard the word holy a million times, but it's sort of an abstract word. It's sort of hard to pin down for some of us. So we're going to talk about what holy means. Holy actually means set apart for God's express use. Set apart for God's express use. Holiness is not earned by good behavior. We frequently think that, but it is not earned by Uh, good behavior. In the Old Testament, of course, it came through the law. And so I think that's why people think of it as good behavior. But if God called the Sabbath holy, the Sabbath hasn't done anything to be better than any other day of the week, right? God called the instruments inside the temple holy. Well, those tables and candlesticks didn't do anything to become holy. So holiness is not earned by our actions. Holiness is given by God. And so we have here people who need to be holy. And being holy means belonging to God to such a degree that we choose out of our love for him to obey him and to be devoted to him. Obedience and devotion come from that love of him. And it's how we know we're holy. And so holiness is very important. 
How do we find and encourage others to seek holiness in this broken world? If we find ourselves in a broken faith community, if we find ourselves in the midst of brokenness somewhere, how do we find and encourage others to seek holiness? Well, I love this quote by Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Leaving Church. She says, a priest is a priest, no matter where she happens to be. Her job is to recognize the holy in things and hold them up to God. Her job is to speak in a way that helps other people recognize the holiness of things too. And this quote sheds a little light on what's going on with Nehemiah and why he's so upset with Eliashib, the high priest. Eliashib failed to recognize the holy of the temple when he decided to just let someone live there who, didn't even, who wasn't Jewish and didn't care about the city. He failed to, to hold up the holiness of the temple and say, this place is holy and it's been, it's been given an express use by God. The people of Jerusalem have failed to recognize that God called the Sabbath holy, that they're meant to turn to one another on the Sabbath and say, today is holy. We're meant to set this day apart. God has set it apart for us. They're forgetting what holy means. And so they fail to live holy lives. And in case you think holiness is an Old Testament idea, it's also all over the New Testament. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.9, our holiness is spoken of like this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, Nehemiah built a wall, right? But God is building us. Nehemiah built a wall, but God is building us. God is building us into a spiritual house. We're called to be priests. We're called to hold the things up that make it possible to live for God and show other people the holiness in them. That is who we're meant to be. That is how we live holy lives. You know, we shouldn't expect to knowingly forsake lordship in our lives, to knowingly disobey God, and just sort of assume that choosing our own comfort is going to be just okay with him. It's just not okay. Not if we want to live holy lives. If we want to live holy lives, we have to remember that we're set apart. We're set apart for God's express use, that he's made us and created us and, and called us to live in a certain way for him, to honor him with our lives and our love and our relationships and all the things we do and all the things we say, that it's for his glory. That's how he's called us to live. And so Nehemiah got it right by recognizing the lack of holiness in his community. I mean, he really did, but he also kind of got it wrong. <laughs> he said, went to the leaders of Judah, what is going on here? This evil profaning the Sabbath, isn't this exactly what our ancestors did? And because of it, didn't God bring down on us in this city all this misery? And here you are adding to it, accumulating more wrath on Jerusalem by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah sounds very afraid to me. He's afraid that his city and his community is again making the same kinds of choices that caused them to be sent into exile, into captivity. They, they no longer had a temple. They no longer had a place to worship. And he's thinking, if we forget what this temple is for, if we forget what worship is, where will we end up? He's scared that they're going to become like they used to be. 
He's scared that all the progress they've made, all the ways they've grown back towards God is going to be lost. And so he acts, and he starts throwing people out and shutting doors and ordering people around. However, holiness that is motivated by coercion and intimidation really can't transform a community. Just can't. Nehemiah gets it wrong here, and he thinks that bringing the hammer of the law down on everyone is going to change their hearts. And it's hard to blame him. I I don't think Nehemiah had many other options because they really only had the law. They only had the law to guide them in Old Testament times prior to Jesus. They had the law, and so he tries to use the law. But the law really, it's never been good at reforming our hearts, right? Which is why God sent Jesus. And Jesus taught a different way of living. He taught a different kind of of holiness in our lives. And if we look at Matthew 5, there's a pretty huge learning curve for us. And it's challenging. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Gosh, it's hard to live that. I mean, if you've ever been wounded by someone's lack of holiness, particularly someone in some sort of authority in your life, It is hard to love your enemy. I mean, just try that one when your kids fight over whose turn it is. (sighs) Mom, whose turn it is? He hit me. Baby, you got to love your enemy. Uh, That'll preach. But Jesus is telling us here that safe and healthy community is not built through power or better walls. He's telling us that it's not built through laws and rules. He's telling us it's actually built by loving people who mostly don't deserve to be loved. We do not like doing that, do we? (laughs) That is a very hard thing to do. But community is built by recognizing the holy in one another, holding it up to God and saying, I see that this is someone you made. I don't like them very much. (laughs) But you made them and you love them. And so I will choose to love them as you love them. That will change a city. That will change a nation. That will change the wrongs that have been done and the wrongs that could be done. If we can do that with one another, if we can grab hold, what Nehemiah could not do, he could not love his enemy. He hadn't been taught that, right? And, but we can. And there's a holiness here in this church because people have chosen to do that. There's a holiness here. I I can't tell you how many times I'm astounded by people here who love the broken and enter into their pain to see them grow towards God, to know. They want people to know. They see their holiness. Those of you who minister to broken people, to homeless, to people who are marginalized, those of you who are counselors, you enter into their pain and you love them and you help them. You live so courageously. So many of you live this so courageously. It's amazing to me. And it makes this place holy. 
It makes all of us understand what holiness is when you hold it up and tell us about what you're doing and what God's called you to do. And it's truly inspiring because we are some of God's set-apart people. We've been set apart, and what we're building is holy. And it's beautiful because this is God's biggest dream for the world, right? Like, you look inside a church, any church that really loves Jesus, and you will see God's biggest dream, biggest dream for the earth, that we would love one another enough to rise above our our need for comfort and selfishness and prejudice, and this is the hardest one, rise above our woundedness and love other people. And I realize this seems obvious, but in order for our city to see the holy thing God is doing here, the holy thing that's happening in our lives, in order for them to believe that there's a way to live in unity in these very shakable times, we have to engage with them. We've got to invite them over. We've got to invite them to church. We've got to have conversations with them about what's holiness mean. What does that mean in my life? Why do I care about holy? That means in this massively overscheduled world that we're in, we have to prioritize our faith community. It's just true. This place needs to be a priority for me. For our family, this gets tricky. Um, on Sundays... My sons frequently have baseball games because baseball is cool. And um, we have had to really sit and talk about what, how are we going to handle this? What are we going to do? Some Sundays, my daughter has ballet recitals. How are we going to handle that? What are we going to do? Well, we've decided for our family that church is just a priority over those things and that we come here first and then we go there. Or we go there first, but we make sure we leave in time to be here. Go 12:30 service. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, church is a higher priority for us, and we not because we think coming to church is some sort of superstitious way of like keeping the devil away, right? But <laughs> but because we know this, we value the holiness here. We value the people here. We value and love what God is doing here. And I want my kids to know all of you. I want them to engage here. I want them to see their friends in their classes. I want them to see their, you know, aunties and uncles here in the church. I said aunties. Um, I want them to, to latch on to you and know that you love them and faith is important and God is important. That happens here right? And so they might be late for baseball. My son might not get to hit if he doesn't get there in time to get in the lineup. But that's okay. That's okay with me because I'm not raising baseball players and ballerinas. All right? Those are things we do and we love them. But there's so much fear in people's lives about their kids not becoming all they're supposed to be. And so they feel like they've got, we want that scholarship. We want to make sure we get in line. We want to make sure we're committed. And they put all these, this pressure even on their kids to be great at things. But my kids, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want them to be great at things. I want them to know that God is greater. 
We're not raising ballerinas and baseball players. We're raising image bearers of the one true God who are going to have to grow up and try to learn this thing that we are working so hard to do ourselves, which is be a priest who can see the holy in things and hold it up to God and tell other people what's holy too. And let me tell you, when I tell somebody, we, we can't miss church, we're going to be a little late, they think we're crazy. And you know what's a really interesting conversation? Why church is that important for us? They always assume it's because we're pastors. That's not why. That's not why. Because I don't have to be here. Right? because this place is holy. And someday, something is probably going to happen to our family or in our family that we aren't going to know what to do about. Something's going to happen that won't seem holy to us. We won't see the holiness in that thing. And I'm going to tell you who I'm not going to run to to talk to about that thing. Baseball coaches or friends from ballet. I'm going to run to all of you and I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, I don't know what to do about this. And you're going to look at it and you're going to say, I may not know what to do either, but I know that God is holy and that somewhere in this is his good for your family. That is why we need a a faith community that is not broken. That is why it needs to be a priority because, oh, we need this place. We need one another. This holy community is where we can begin to grow beyond the fear that Nehemiah had. The fear that things aren't going to be okay. The fear that we're going back to old ways. The fear that brokenness is our lot in life. We can rise above that and know that we really can get it right. So Nehemiah, multiple times, does something, and then he prays afterward. And he always prays, remember me, oh God. Remember my heart, basically. Remember that I was trying to do something good after he kicks people out and throws them out and makes new rules and (laughs) bless him. (laughs) God bless him. He was doing the best he could. And it reminds me of the times that I happened to climb the stairs of my home and arrive in the upstairs region And I find that the order that once reigned has eroded (laughs) slowly over time, 20 minutes. And and I am Nehemiah, you know, Jerusalem is broken. (laughs) And I crack the whip and I start giving out orders and decrees. Thou shalt go clean thy room or thou shalt never come out. And... (laughs) And in the end, we have a clean upstairs, but I am always sad. I'm sad that I got upset. I'm sad that my children still can't be tidier. <laughs> For reals. <laughs> and I'm sad that we haven't found a better way by now, because we've been doing this a while. And I go to God and I pray, God, remember, I had really good intentions. And I'm Nehemiah. <clears throat> 
we want to make sure, right, that everything is healed up in the end. And I have to go to my kids, I have to repent and explain myself and tell them I'm sorry I was mad, but if they would just clean up the rooms, I wouldn't have to be mad. No, that's kind of passive-aggressive, but... um. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, James 1.20 tells us that human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And my little tirade upstairs really isn't helping things, except that it got clean. So maybe it helps a little bit. <laughs> but my anger can't bring about God's righteousness. And so we're gonna, we need to talk about the anger here Nehemiah had. And it, I found, as I read this this week, I was astounded when I started reading Matthew 21 when Jesus cleanses the temple. These are so similar, the stories. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus kind of goes Nehemiah at the beginning of this, right? Like he comes into the temple, he sees it's out of order, he makes it all right. Oh, but then what does Jesus do? He heals them. Jesus had a different way of doing this. And Jesus is our greater Nehemiah. You know, we see that Jesus values holiness. He values community. He values justice. Because these money changers, the people selling stuff, were in the outer court, which was the only place that Gentiles were allowed to come and worship. So because it was full of business, no worship could happen in that court, which meant only Jewish people were able to worship in that temple. That temple was not open to everyone. And I don't want to miss here the difference between Nehemiah and Jesus. Nehemiah cleansed the temple by closing the doors and only allowing the Jewish people in. He got rid of anyone who didn't belong. Jesus... He throws the doors open. He cleanses the temple by making sure everyone can come worship and belong. And then he starts healing people who are blind and lame. Well, blind and lame people were considered unclean. They weren't allowed in the temple. So again, he's saying to them, listen, this place is for everyone. You cannot exclude people. We want everyone in the temple worshiping. We want everyone to belong. Jesus threw open those doors. He had come all the way from heaven to open the doors to show us that healing happens in a community that's been made holy by Jesus. This is where we heal, in community. He did what Nehemiah couldn't do. Nehemiah could not heal the people Jesus, only Jesus could heal the people. Healing happens when Jesus has made a community holy. And it's interesting about community here because you think Jesus actually, our God is a God of community. God exists in community. Three gods, one person, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. New theology. Um, One God... Three persons. This one will not be the podcast. Um, <laughs> but our God is triune. When God said to, that it was not good for Adam to be alone, that he needed community, he was speaking from personal experience. And when our communion with God was fractured by sin, 
God's plan was to send a member of his community to us to reestablish our community with God. I mean, it's just fascinating. God never meant for any of us to be alone out there on our own. He always meant for us to be in here. This is God's dream for humanity. Healing happens when, like Jesus, we love holiness and make space so that everyone can belong. This is how we get it right in our faith community. This is how we seek to be healed and to be an agent of healing in the lives of others. It's our our whole goal here. Know who we are. Be holy. Seek healing. Build community. That's our goal here. So how do we do that? That sounds really hard, right? How can we bring holiness and healing in and through this community? Well, here's three quick bullet points. First, by embracing our vulnerability. You know, none of us is... is, uh, immune to the deceitfulness of sin. If you see someone else getting it wrong, what that should tell you is you theoretically could definitely get it wrong in the exact same way. (laughs) Or you might already be getting it wrong in that exact same way. We have to embrace the fact that we all need help. We all need healing. We all need wholeness. There's nobody who here never feels selfish, never gets angry unjustly. (laughs) We're all vulnerable. And we can't fix what we won't face. Second, seeking the gospel in all things. Gosh, we need to be saved again and again and again. I can't tell you. Like, Jesus saves you from all your sin once, and then the rest of your life you get saved again and again. It's so fascinating. But we really do have to seek the gospel in all, our, in all things. And that means taking the low place. It's fascinating to me to think of how Jesus will call us to, you know, we love it that Jesus says like, oh, just give it all away and follow me. And we love it that he says it to other people. Um, you know, join me in my suffering. We don't love those things. Those are scary things. But the truth is that if you're living the gospel, you should be living uncomfortable so that other people can be comforted. If your life is really comfortable, you probably aren't really seeking the gospel in all things. I mean, it's hard, but it's true. We've got to do that. And I'm always shocked by how much my soul wants to defend its right to be selfish. (laughs) Like, you know, hiding the ice cream that I don't want my kids to eat, or (laughs) telling myself it's okay that I don't have time to help somebody who asked me to help them. You guys don't do that stuff, right? (laughs) It's hard to live the gospel. It's uncomfortable. Third, by lifting one another. So this first two, embracing our vulnerability and seeking the gospel, those are really things we can do to initiate healing within ourselves, right? Like those are ways you connect with God and you connect God to your circumstances and you find yourself being made whole by truth, and by choices to love beyond what's comfortable. But lifting one another. Sometimes there's a brokenness in someone's life that those first two can't, they can't help them. They're so broken they can't even get up. They're so broken they can't think about how vulnerable they are or understand the gospel in that place. They're so broken. We've all been that at some point, I'm sure. I've been that. And it takes other people. It takes other people reaching in and saying, I see the holiness in you. 
I see that God made you, that he wired you and created you for a purpose, that you have the divine God of heaven and earth living within you, and he is going to come to you. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I'm going to be here with you holding you up until he does. That will change our city. That will change everything. We have to lift one another up. My prayer for us today is simple. That the justice and peace we seek to bring to our city will look like Jesus cleansing the temple and then healing the people. I want us to pray before we act, not after. I want us to find a way to live Matthew 5 and love our enemies and forgive people who may not deserve it. And yet I also want us to stand courageously against injustice and defend the weak and the powerless and make space in this place for everyone to belong. I want our hands to be outstretched, seeking to heal the people around us who need healing.